0: You're listening to To Whom It May Concern, a live monthly show in Los Angeles, California, where folks read their letters on stage, real letters they've written or received, correspondence back and forth, improvised letters based on audience suggestions, and the letters we only wish we could write.
1: Carolyn Martone reads a letter she wrote as a child to Aaron Spelling. A letter so funny, she reads it on tour with the show, Mortified.
2: Dear Aaron Spelling, My dad forbids me to watch The Love Boat. This is a big problem, because it's my favorite show. My dad objects to the premarital sex that runs rampant on your show. He says it is inappropriate and not allowed anymore in our house. Or Fantasy Island, which happens to be my second favorite show. I usually go to my grandparents' house. They let me watch both. And my grandmother said she would buy me the stamps to put on this letter so that it gets to you in Studio City, California, where I had to squint a bunch of times in front of the TV at the end of the show to figure out where to send this letter to. It took me a bunch of times to figure it out. I am writing to ask you if there is any way you could stop having the characters put those do not disturb signs on the doors of the cabins when they are going to have the premarital sex because that is what started this whole thing. I asked my mom the reason why they have to put the do not disturb signs, on the doors. But then my dad came in the room and said, that's it, you can't watch The Love Boat anymore, Carolyn, and don't ask again, because the answer's still going to be no. So I asked my babysitter, Mary Ellen, what the signs mean. She goes to Maria College, and she loves the show, but she said that Doc and Gopher are, quote, always trying to get laid, which I spelled L-A-D-E when they are supposed to be working, and maybe that's why my dad won't let me watch it. She said it's so that the maids don't walk in when they are having the sex. But couldn't they just lock the door? Mary Ellen also told me that I couldn't like the guy from Air Supply because he's gay. And when I asked my mom what that meant, she said that Mary Ellen wasn't going to be babysitting for us anymore. I just love the song at the beginning. I messed up because I thought the words were love, exciting, and do. And when I asked my grandma what the word "endu" meant, she said it wasn't a real word. The real words are love, exciting, and new. I laughed so hard at that. I also wanted to ask you, Mr. Spelling, what kind of physician is Dr. Adam Bricker anyway? He never mentions going to medical school. Shouldn't he at least wear a stethoscope or carry a tongue depressor in case of emergencies? I like him the most, even if he is too old for me. My best friend, Melissa, Missy Haynes, and I often play love boat when we go outside at recess. She is married to Gopher, Mr. Fred Grandy, and I am married to Doc, Mr. Bernie Copel, and we pretend we are on the Acapulco Lounge, even though it's always cold here in Albany, New York. Isaac is good, too, but he is a bartender. And also, I don't think it would be okay for me to like a black guy. Because I already got in trouble when I fell in love with Mr. Reggie Jackson. And my grandfather said, you can't like him. You're Italian. You have to like Lou Piniella. (laughs) Who consequently was not, also was not Italian. Well, Mr. Spelling, I really love your show, and that's the reason I wrote this letter to you, even though my grandmother said it's going to go to a secretary, and you are really busy. But maybe you'll read it because you have a daughter who is my age, and you might feel sorry for me. I hope so. Sincerely, yours, Carolyn Martone, Albany, New York. Thank you. we
0: Will Link had an awkward encounter with a celebrity, and has written a letter to said celebrity, much to our delight.
3: Dear Oscar-winning screenwriter Diablo Cody, (laughs) I want to apologize for my behavior when I met you at BookSoup back in 2008. You were there signing copies of the Juno script in your terrific book, Candy Girl. I was there to hear your Q&A and to meet a writer I'd come to admire. I'm sure you have no memory of this incident. I'm sure you've dealt with far weirder and obnoxious syphikants. Yet, I feel the need to write you this letter, which will probably only make me come off creepier than I already did. I mean, it's not like I'm some sort of stalker. And yes, I'm well aware the only people who say that are, in fact, stalkers. (laughs) Nevertheless, as I, along with my friend Cassie J. Snyder, waited to get our book signed, it occurred to me I always sound like a hapless moron in front of celebrities I admire. I desperately wanted this to change. I had loved Juno so much and thought you, with your tattoos and attitude, was so cool, I desperately wanted to come off cool as well. My track record of playing it cool with people I'm true fans of was rocky, to say the least. In college, Oliver Stone came to talk and signed copies of his new book. The book was terrible. It was essentially a 200-page suicide note from Vietnam. But I bought it, so I'd have the opportunity, if only for a second or two, to meet the man who made JFK. Nervous, I didn't know what to say. U-Turn had just come out. It was only all right, but I figured I'd just tell him I liked it. I really liked U-Turn. Yeah? Oliver gruffly replied while signing my book. You know what you should see? What? What? I asked, expecting to hear a great film that inspired him. (laughs) U-turn. Confused, I explained, I had already seen it. He slammed my book shut and growled, see it again. (laughs) Since then, I've only been more nervous when meeting those whose work I truly wish I could emulate. I've gotten to meet my hero, John Waters, twice. The first time, I think I just barely squeaked out my favorite film of his was Desperate Living. The second time, I was somewhat more composed, and we had a very brief but very meaningful, for me, discussion about autoerotic asphyxiation. (laughs) Shortly before meeting you, I got to meet Werner Herzog. All I could muster was a weak, I really like your movies. This is a bold filmmaker, a true artist and i sounded like every other sad pathetic film geek which brings me back to you miss cody <laughs> waiting to meet you i decided i wasn't going to come off like some nerd and tell you how much i loved juno i was going to be cool so when i reached the front of the line i looked you dead in the eyes and said how you doing Yes, I gave you my best Joey Tribbiani. I suddenly realized it sounded like I was hitting on you. You looked up at me confused and said, fine. I was immediately mortified, befuddled, only mustering a weird, uh. Rather than come off as the nerd, I came off as the creep, which is far worse. Luckily, my friend Cassie stepped in. She's also a tattooed writer and the two of you bonded over her ink. You told her, I love that you're alive. I breathed a sigh of relief. At least I was there with the cool girl. (laughs) This very minor incident has kind of haunted me. Did I subconsciously choose you to try playing it cool with because you're a talented, attractive woman? I'm not a star fucker and usually don't get so befuddled around celebs. Well, I'm not a star fucker, but I am a name dropper. I once shared Girl Scout cookies and hung out in a hot tub with Katherine Heigel. But this meant very little to me. I was far more excited by the time Lena Dunham replied to a tweet of mine because I admire the fuck out of her as I do you. And that's what haunts me. The day I met you, I realized that when you meet a famous person you admire... All you should say is, I love your work. These people aren't your friends. You don't really know them. And all you have to connect to them is the work. And that is an important bond that should be respected. I'm sure when someone tells you how much a film you wrote means to them, it gives you a sense of pride. I know it gives me the same sense when people say they enjoy something I performed. And although you've heard it from a million people, I regret not being one of them. So this letter is just a long-winded way of saying, Juno, young adult, and everything else you've done has meant a lot to me as both a fellow writer and a fan. Thank you. Sincerely, Will Link.
1: Aaron Rodman returns with a letter to her second Hollywood boss. And if you haven't heard the letter to her first Hollywood boss, check out the September podcast.
4: Dear second Hollywood boss... <laughs> My heart filled with sympathy this morning when I got the call from your girlfriend that your 40th birthday party ended with you in the hospital. It was nice of her to stay with you all weekend, especially since she's in the middle of finals and we all know how tough junior year can be for a fashion major. (laughs) You guys really are a completely reasonable and understandable couple, and (laughs) I wish you logic-defying success. As for your injury, I fully understand the need for discretion. I mean, I'm not sure there's a better way to start your 40s than with sex so aggressively enthusiastic and intense that you are hospitalized and unconscious for a day and a half. (laughs) And you can trust me to tell no one. (laughs) Per your request, I have kept the news of your whereabouts under wraps, despite insistent calls from your parents, colleagues, and other girlfriends. Enjoy these flowers and rest assured that I'm doing all I can to keep your life in normal working order. Speaking of which, I have an update on your missing BMW. (laughs) While it might be difficult for some to understand how you could misplace your own vehicle somewhere in Los Angeles and not realize it for five full days, I completely relate. After all, I too get so bogged down in the little details of life that I lose sight of the big things, like a car. But you're in luck. The valet stand of Chaconis in Beverly Hills still has the Beamer in its possession. They thought maybe it was Clooney's, and so, to avoid the embarrassment of towing an A-lister's fancy ride, they left it parked in front. I really do think the universe blessed you with a life full of astounding good fortune, because they are only going to charge you $20. That's cheaper than a day of parking at LAX. Huzzah. (laughs) I've contacted your doctor. You know, the one who works out of his Mercedes in the parking lot of the Chase Bank on Sunset. (laughs) I'm picking up your Percocet later today, and he said he was going to throw in a couple other fun things. I tell you, you really do know all the right people. It's funny, thinking of you alone, there in the hospital, in a great deal of pain, maybe frightened and confused, reminds me how I felt when I was starting out on your desk. There was this one day that first week, you walked in, North Face backpack in hand, and without saying a word, you unzipped it and dumped it on my desk. It was like a little blizzard, crumpled receipts, scraps of paper, bits of gum, a condom. You winked and said, time to do expenses, like it was a game. I guess it was kind of fun to play Sherlock Holmes and put together a timeline of all your actions over the previous few months. I remember asking how you could spend $450 on food and drinks at 11 a.m. on a Thursday. (laughs) You put a hand on my shoulder and, like James Bond to Miss Moneypenny, whispered, it's your job to make sure the strip club charges get approved. How wonderful to be taken into your confidence. (laughs) So as not to let you down, I used my wiles and charm to deliver. You may never have thanked me in words, but for all the thousands of dollars I put back in your pocket by getting those receipts past accounting but I'm certain you were grateful. But more than gratitude, I knew you trusted me. You would never have asked me to take you to the back doctor for outpatient surgery if you didn't see me as a reliable and valuable part of your life. We pulled up to the curb, and rather than getting out, you said, what are you doing? Come in with me. I couldn't help but think, wow, he really needs me. This is more than a professional relationship. We are a team. So we sat in the waiting room side by side until the nurse called your name an encouraging smile from me. I'll be here when you get out. And you said, make sure you have five double-doubles animal style with no bun waiting for me because I'm starving. And I said, okay, boss, okay. A few hours later, they wheeled you out to my car and you were just grinning. Your eyes lit up like Christmas morning when you saw the In-N-Out bag in my hand. I have to confess, it was kind of endearing to see you tear into those burgers like a man who had never seen a fork or a knife or a napkin in his life. So we're on the 10, and remember you turned to me and said, after today, I'm no longer afraid of death. Maybe it was a little difficult to take you seriously with ketchup on your hands and chin and lap. (laughs) But nevertheless, I thought, this is a sort of confessional truth about the human experience that friends share with each other. I think you agreed. The next day, you called and asked me to drive you to work again. And the day after that as well. I obliged. After all, that's what friends do for each other, right? Even though your back was healed, your house was not on the way to the office, and you repeatedly declined to buy me gas, I did it. Why? Because you once said, if I really care about doing a good job, I will do as you ask without question. I thought about that a lot. I thought about it when you said it was my job to make sure you ate lunch every day so you didn't get grumpy. I thought about it when I took that eight hour online driving course as you so you could get points off your license. I thought about it when you called me 23 times on a Saturday morning because you couldn't find the drafts folder in your email inbox. (laughs) And I thought about it when you sent me to the airport to look for your misplaced iPad twice. LAX is far, man, and lost and found there is where dreams go to die. (laughs) But I did it because you asked me to. So because you trust me, and because you asked me to, and because I want to do a good job, I'm keeping all of this just between us. I will definitely never do a staged reading of this letter <laughs> that will become a podcast that will live forever on the Internet. <laughs> definitely not. Here's to a speedy recovery. Faithfully yours, Erin. Peggy
0: Etra, a familiar name at the letter show, improvises a brilliant rant based on the audience suggestion of there being no parking, at the end of her street due to construction for the past four months.
5: Ms. Paula Christensen, did you think I wouldn't find you? Did you think I don't know how to use a computer? Well, I can assure you, I have found you, and yes, I do know how to use a computer. Please note I did not say dear at the beginning of this letter, because believe you me, there is nothing dear in the way I feel about you, Ms. Christensen. How you got a permit to build a house at the end of the block that would take over four months to build is beyond me. But you must know, people, I guess you're someone. Well, let me tell you something. I may not be someone, but I'm me and I'm pissed. I bought a smart car for one reason, and one reason only, and it wasn't to be cool or cute. It was because I could find parking in this city. That is, until the trucks came, and the large dumpster came, and the cones came, and the tape came and the temporary no parking signs went up. And do you know what happened to me? I had to park three blocks away and someone literally picked up my car and took it. (laughs) That's right. It is not in any lot around town. I have called every police lot, every tow lot. The car is gone. There's actually a video camera from the ATM across the street from where I parked my car. And I saw two people of indeterminate age, but about five, six to six feet tall, pick up my car, put it in the back of their Toyota Tundra and drive away. (laughs) So Miss Christensen, at the very least, you owe me a car. But I'll just bet that you're not going to give me one. So please know that I had no other recourse but while under the veil of darkness, every night I would sneak down to your construction site and pour one bag of concrete into your sewer system. Oh. One bag every night for the last four months. (laughs) Enjoy, won't you? No, I won't be signing my name, Ms. Christensen. But please know, every time I look down at the end of that block, there's a little part of me that a little shiver of glee, like electricity goes up my spine. I don't think you'll be able to sell the house And I'm hoping that this hurts you. Yours sincerely, a neighbor.
0: (laughs) My name is Jane Entwistle, a producer on To Whom It May Concern, and I read a letter to Ned Beatty about the time I sucked up his toothbrush with the vacuum cleaner. Ned, if you're listening, I'm really, really sorry. Dear Neddy, Mr. Beatty, I have a long overdue confession to make. Once, I accidentally sucked up your toothbrush with the vacuum cleaner. I dug it out and put it back beside the sink. (laughs) I rinsed it off first, I promise. I was so panicked and overwhelmed I didn't know what to do or how to tell you. How does a person leave a note like that? Dear Ned, your toothbrush made a trip around the Hoover bag. So sorry, chicken's in the fridge. Whenever I watch old reruns of Roseanne or someone quotes the squeal like a pig line from your movie Deliverance, all I can think of is the horrible sound the vacuum made when it inhaled your toothbrush, and I feel flushed with guilt. This is a real letter. I really did do this. This isn't isn't some fantasy of mine. Flushed is exactly how I answered the door that day when Bob Saget came calling. (laughs) He was filming that movie about his sister outside your building, and when he heard that you were staying inside the private apartments housing the famous, filming in Vancouver, Canada, he had to stop by and say hello. Since you had to pass through a security entrance to enter the fourplex, I never guessed it would be Bob Saget on the other side of your private door. I assumed it would be a worker or my boss. With a mop in one hand, sweaty hair in a ponytail, and flushed crimson cheeks, I flung the door open as I imagined Jane Eyre longed to fling open the door of her own prison. (laughs) I was reading Bronte's Jane Eyre at the time and imagined myself as tormented as that hapless orphan. I glared up at Mr. Saget. We both stared, surprised by the presence of the other. He searched my face, and then I saw at once he thought I was related to you. Red hair, blue eyes, round cheeks. I'd much rather be your daughter, Mr. Beatty, than your maid. I promised to give you the message from Saget, and I slammed the door, falling into a sobbing heap by my mop. I hated being a maid. I hated cleaning the bizarre trail of lipstick that lined the walls after Alyssa Milano's Stay Downstairs. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly thought that cleaning one of the apartments they used as Dana Scully's apartment on The X-Files put me one step closer to my dream of being on The (laughs) X-Files. I was naive enough to think that vacuuming up the mounds of hair you shed on a daily, nay, hourly basis, meant I was that much closer to Hollywood, when in reality all it meant was that I was that much closer to your astonishingly bad aim. (laughs) You would stand in the living room gazing out at the rain while playing your upright bass, still one of my favorite instruments, and you would call to me, Nancy! Allison! Sarah! You never could remember my name. (laughs) But to be fair, I was hired by the apartment owner, not you. I would sit still in the other room and listen for as long as I could stand. And then I'd call out, Yes, Ned! And you'd ask me where your glasses were. I hated you for your success. And yet those moments were surprisingly intimate the haunting notes of the bass drifting through the apartment, the rain drumming against the windows, the crisp snap of a starched white bed sheet. I longed to be your equal, your peer, master of the upstairs, not resident of the downstairs. One day, as I kneeled beside your bed to tuck in the corners of the bed skirt, I noticed the piles of screenplays propping up your bed. You were having issues with breathing, I believe, and needed a strong voice for your role in the musical Showboat, so you had to sleep at a steep angle. The top script was written by none other than the producer of my first professional play, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, for which I was paid four and a half cents an hour <laughs> to be a <an> Oompa Loompa <laughs> and pinch hitter for Veruca Salt. Surely that combined with my proximity to the X-Files meant something. Maybe it was just enough symbolic kumbaya to get me through sucking up your toothbrush and making your bed and meeting Bob Saget while being nothing more than your maid. Little nudges from the universe saying, I know it's weird, ma'am, but keep going. You'll get there. <laughs> I would love the chance to meet you again and tell you the story of your wayward toothbrush. No doubt you would stare at me blankly, for why on earth would you ever register the girl tasked with cleaning your toilet? I'd want us to meet as residents of the upstairs, though, as arcane and base as that sounds. Hopefully it has little to do with class and wealth, and more with an acknowledgement of the tenacity it takes to go from vacuuming up Ned Beatty's scrapings to the supposed making it in Hollywood. My name is Jane Ned, Jane Entwistle. And once I sucked up your fucking toothbrush with a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> so, Justin, I was thinking, we've been doing the show now for about a year and a half, and there's been some amazing letters. And I'm just wondering what letters stick out in your mind.
1: You know, I, I was thinking about this, and I, I think Kevin Bernson's improv from January, was it January? Yeah. Where he takes his children to Best Buy uh, because he wants to show them adapters because he feels like they're having trouble adapting to their new neighborhood. (laughs) I found that to be hilarious.
0: (laughs) That was a a hilarious letter. Kevin Burnson is a master improviser. Yeah, that was the audience suggestion of Best Buy and an adapter. And then he wove an incredible letter.
1: It was amazing. I was truly impressed by that. So which which one of these was your favorite?
0: I have to go back to the first show we ever did, October 2013, and Daryl Kunatomi's letter that he read from his uncle who fought in World War II for the Americans, but he was a Japanese prisoner of war. He was interned in a camp in Wyoming. Yeah. And he uh, volunteered to fight for the Americans, and that was such a powerful, amazing strangely poetic letter.
1: Yeah, and when he started reading it, this loud bar went dead silent. It was was amazing.
0: Yeah, you could hear a pin drop and that one has stuck with me for the past year and a half. And I'm curious, listeners, what are some of your favorite letters? What stands out with you? We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at letters at readyourletter.com You have been listening to To Whom It May Concern, produced by Jane Entwistle
1: and Justin Crane,
0: and recorded live at the Lyric Hyperion Theater and Cafe in Silver Lake, California. The musician for this episode was one of our favorites, Aaron Gilmartin.
1: I am a good patriot, I'll fight your wars, I'll march as straight as the
3: ones who marched before.
0: Subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes so we rise above the fray. You can also find us on Podbean and Stitcher. And if you have a letter you would like to submit, even if you live far, far away, we'll read it for you. Visit ReadYourLetter.com